guys ready for another Patriots cheating story? Of course you are. We're always up for something like that. Spygate 2? Maybe. We're going to get into that over the course of next hour. It is the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along. In addition to Spygate Part 2, we've got Monday Night Football to break down. Maybe not a good game, but a close game last night between the Eagles and Giants. We've got Mike Golick Jr. of Golick and Wingo join me on the ESPN-UP phone line in about 15 minutes. We're going to talk college football. We're going to get an in-depth breakdown from a guy who's played in a national championship, a guy who rubs elbows with some of the greatest minds around college football with the Heisman finalists being released last night. The bowl matchups are released on Sunday. Mike Golick Jr. in about 15 minutes right here on ESPN-UP. And of course, it's Northern Michigan Tuesdays. I've got some NMU audio for you. Basketball, hockey, we'll get updates on those teams. All that and more coming up over the course of this show. Glad to have you along here in ESPN-UP. But let's start with what's trending between the Patriots and the Bengals. Here's what we know before we make any assumptions or we throw out accusations. Here's what we know. The New England Patriots, or at least a group that's owned by Patriots owner Robert Kraft, a video group, is doing a season-long documentary of sorts on the Patriots. And what they do is they go to each opponent the week before the Patriots play them and they get some film on them. So this week, they have the Cincinnati Bengals coming up. Sunday, the Bengals were playing the Cleveland Browns. So the Patriot video crew, or at least the Robert Kraft-owned video crew, as they identified themselves, went to the Browns-Bengals game to film some of the Bengals, get some crowd shots, what have you. Well, they spent the first quarter, the entire first quarter, filming the Bengals' sidelines. I've got in front of me a series of tweets from our own Deanna Rossini, does a wonderful job here at ESPN. And here are Diana's tweets word for word. A source tells me a Bengals employee was watching the videographer slash cameraman who identified himself as a Robert Kraft employee. The Bengals employee kept an eye on that monitor. The shot was of the Bengals coaches and staff on the sideline for the entire first quarter. Her next tweet says, the Bengals employee flagged media relations. Bengals security then interviewed the Kraft videographer. This was also taped. The cameraman asked if they could just delete the footage and it could all be forgotten. Sources say there was a guy interviewing a Patriots pro scout before the game, but that was over when the game started. Other accounts say that this craft-owned video crew had prepared responses if they were to be stopped by security at any stadium, not just with what happened with the Bengals on Sunday, at any stadium that they're doing this, because they've done it all season long, only this is the first time that someone's noticed them filming another team's sidelines. They had prepared responses if they were to be stopped or questioned by security, and they were directed not to identify themselves as New England Patriot employees, but as Robert Kraft employees. The reporter who covers the Bengals for the Athletic, his name escapes me off the top of my head, he said in the preseason when the Patriots first had this idea that they were going to do this season-long documentary previewing the Patriots' opponents, that the Patriots are going to be that team that goes into opposing stadiums and they don't identify as Patriot employees. They have prepared responses that were given to them if they were to be questioned by security. It's fascinating. If you read his athletic article, I, the Bengals beat reporter for the athletic, I can't come up with his name off the top of my head. It is fascinating because he literally predicts exactly what happened on Sunday, exactly what the report that came out yesterday says. 
So were the Patriots cheating? Well, they've done something like this before. I mean, if there's any franchise in the NFL is going to do it, it would be this New England Patriots team, would it not? We had Spygate. We had Deflategate. This is Spygate 2.0? Oh, maybe. I'm not going to pass judgment. The NFL has a copy of the tape. The Bengals have the original. The Bengals are not going to release a copy of that tape. ESPN tried and could not get a copy of the tape. So right now, it appears that the tape is going to rest with the NFL and the Bengals. So they're the only ones, plus those who actually film the events, that know what truly happened. I'm going to wait for the NFL to make its ruling, to see if there is anything that would suggest the Patriots were trying to cheat, were trying to spy on the Bengals. Here's the thing. This story is just going to go away here in a couple of days. I mean, we have so many other scandals, what have you, going on right now. We've got the Astros and what's going on with their World Series run back in 2017 where they were illegally tipping pitches. We have the Russian Olympic uh, doping scandal. All that is being overshadowed for the next 24 to 48 hours by the Patriots. And then we're going to forget about it. Because, for one thing, it's become commonplace with the Patriots to be involved in these kind of scandals. For another, it's against the Bengals. I mean, if they did this last week before they played the Chiefs, or they did this before they played Baltimore, this would be a major story. I mean, we'd be talking about this for years. Because those would be Super Bowl contending teams. The Bengals... Do you need to cheat to beat the Bengals? Here's the thing. The last time that the Patriots played the Bengals at Paul Brown Stadium, they went on the road and played the Bengals in Cincinnati, was 2013. The Bengals won that game. So are the Patriots worried about Andy Dalton six years later? Probably not. Are they worried about a 1-12 team? Probably not. But here's the thing. The late, great Wayne Heisinga who owned almost everything in South Florida until his death about a year and a half ago, Wayne Heisinger was a guy who grew up in poverty. And he turned it into billions by the time he passed away last year. And somebody asked him, what is the lowest amount of money that you would stoop down if you saw it on the ground and pick it up? And Wayne Heisinger, multi-billionaire, owned sports teams as toys, said he would bend over and pick up a penny if he saw one on the ground. Because he grew up in poverty. He knows what it's like. I feel like Bill Belichick's the same way. Bill Belichick is a guy who's going to go down as maybe the greatest coach of all time. He'll be one of the top, for sure, in the conversation, if not the greatest of all time. But it wasn't always that way. Belichick was once a guy who was fired by the Cleveland Browns. He was once a guy who coached one playoff game in five years before getting fired. He went from football poverty to football billions, just like Wayne Heisinger did financially. And if Bill Belichick sees the 1-12 in Bengals, while his team is struggling, they haven't played well the last couple of weeks. They're 2-3 and three in their last five games, those two wins against Philadelphia and Dallas. His team hasn't played well. And if he sees the 1-12 Bengals, a win against the one-win Bengals as a penny that he can bend over and pick up off the ground, he's going to do it because he has experienced football poverty. Does that mean that the Patriots cheated? I'm not saying that. I'm not accusing them of doing that. Again, I'm waiting to pass judgment until the NFL makes its ruling because they're the only ones 
who truly know what's going on, along with the Bengals and that video crew. They're the only ones that truly know what happened. That being said, the Patriots do have a shady history when it comes to this, when it comes to scandals and cheating. We already had Spygate. They did this once before, or at least they did what they're accused of doing once before. Deflategate? I think my favorite part of Deflategate is how they actually had a guy named the Deflator, Jimmy McNally, and he says that was a nickname because of his tremendous weight loss. He lost a lot of weight and nicknamed himself the Deflator. But it just fit in perfectly that Deflategate happened at that same time. I'm going to wait for the NFL's ruling before I pass judgment. It's not my place to do so. But the Patriots cheating, that's great. That's great. That's good for us here in the sports media world. Let's move on to Monday Night Football. Before we do so, however, we do have to acknowledge some sad news, and that is the fact that Pete Frates, who was the iconic figure behind the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge five years ago, did pass away yesterday. He lost his battle with ALS from a physical standpoint. However, that Ice Bucket Challenge, which I'm sure many of you participated in, myself included, raised so much money and changed so many lives, people with ALS. In fact, the money that was raised from the Ice Bucket Challenge went directly to research that found this gene. I don't, I don't, I don't, it's some kind of sciencey gene. I think it's got like two letters and two numbers. I don't know what it is. You can look it up for yourself if you want. The money raised from the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge led directly to the discovery of this gene that's mutation is in a large way responsible for ALS and raising money through this ice bucket challenge has literally changed lives, saved lives with the discovery of this gene. So Pete Frady's as iconic as he was, he may have lost his battle with ALS from a physical standpoint yesterday, but the impact that he's made on the lives of so many people with this kind of disease is just incredible, just outstanding. And I, I just I admire him so much for the way that he chose to respond to what happened to him and to his diagnosis and the way he fought. So rest in peace to Pete Frady. Certainly we wish nothing but the best thoughts and our prayers to his family, his wife, and his daughter. Pete Frady's was 34. With that, let's move to Monday Night Football and what happened last night over in Philadelphia, where the Eagles get off the schneid. They played about as poorly as you could for the last three and a half games. And then the second half last night, Carson Wentz showed up again. He came back. 23-17, they rally from a 17-3 halftime deficit to beat the New York Giants and Eli Manning. Here's the thing. Eli finished the game last night 15-30, 203 yards, two touchdowns. He was not picked, a passer rating of 94. Now That's fairly average if you take that stat line as a package. It's fairly average. Well, Eli in the first half was dealing, and he got off to a slow start. His first pass was a little flat route. He threw to Saquon. He threw it behind him, and he looked like he was going to struggle. And then he just started dropping Bombs. Eli looked like vintage Eli for most of the first half last night. If you ever watch those Uncle Drew videos where Kyrie Irving goes to the playground and he's dressed like an old man and he's kind of fumbling around at first. He's you know struggling a little bit. Guys are thinking, oh boy, you know we're gonna just 
destroy old man river here and then he starts dropping dimes he starts dropping bombs that was eli last night in the first half and then he didn't necessarily play poorly in the second half but the giants never got anything going offensively and they blow a 17 to 3 halftime lead as the eagles rally and as good as eli played in the first half and as average as he played as a whole especially in the second half carson wentz was as bad in the first half and as good in the second half. He finishes 33 of 50, 325 yards, two TDs, and a passer rating of 98. Carson Wentz, after halftime, looked like MVP caliber Carson Wentz back in 2016. And I tell you what, if I were to tell you that there was one running back who absolutely dominated last night, who stole the show, who had 16 touches for 128 yards in last night's game, you would think it was Saquon Barkley, when in fact it was Boston Scott, a guy that most of the country had never heard of before last night. Boston Scott was owning the show for the Philadelphia Eagles. Now, there's going to be a lot of talk about Eli's legacy and what this game does for you. Here's the thing. I don't think that was Eli's last game in a Giants uniform. I think he has three more games left in a Giants uniform because there is no reason for the Giants to trot Daniel Jones back out there. If he truly isn't healthy, and this high ankle sprain really is a two- to four-week injury, you're 2-11. You have nothing to gain by putting him back out there in a lost season. Your franchise quarterback, you have nothing to gain by doing it. So don't do it! Eli Manning has said he doesn't want to be a coach, he doesn't want to be a backup, he doesn't want to hold the clipboard. Now, he's handled the benching extremely well, like an all-pro. But that being said, he doesn't want to be a backup if he doesn't have to. He wants to either play or retire, which means he will not be coming back to the New York Giants next year. We have three games left to enjoy Eli Manning in a New York Giants uniform. They've got two home games left. They've got this Sunday and then the regular season finale against Philadelphia. They owe it to Eli to at least give him one more home game, one more game in the Meadowlands, and let that fan base, his home fans, Send him off. They owe that to him. And there is no reason to trot Daniel Jones back out there. They rushed Saquon back this year. Look what happened to him. He's a shell of himself. Don't do that to Daniel Jones. Don't do that to your franchise quarterback. Now, people will say Eli Manning's Hall of Fame legacy is already over. It's largely dented because of the loss last night that Eli is now 116 and 117 as a starter. I tell you what. He didn't play well in the second half. Absolutely, he did not play well in the second half. They had 29 yards of offense after halftime, didn't put up points. I get that. I get that. At the same time, this is a Philadelphia team that was down to one healthy wide receiver. And Eli Manning was not playing defense that allowed guys like Joshua Perkins, Dallas Goddard, and Greg Ward to send that game to overtime and then eventually win it. That's why wins-losses are not a quarterback stat. Eli did not allow... I mean, who are these guys? Who are these Wards and Perkins and Boston Scots? Eli is not the one that could not stop guys who were sitting on their couch last week, that the Eagles picked up off the streets just to fill out a roster. That's why win-losses are not a quarterback stat. Eli Manning's a Hall of Famer. Deal with it. Hey, I tell you what. It's time to talk college football with 
a guy who's played in the national championship, a guy who talks regularly with some of the greatest minds in college football, Mike Golick Jr. of Golick and Wingo. He joins me on the ESPN-UP phone line next on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along. We turn our attention to postseason college football, and with that, we're delighted to be joined by somebody who's played in the NCAA National Championship, somebody you hear on this station every weekday from 6 to 10, Mike Golick Jr. of Golick and Wingo, kind enough to give us some time on the ESPN-UP phone line. Mike, good to have you on. We're in the midst of digging ourselves out of yesterday's blizzard. How's the weather out in Bristol? It's not too bad. We have just thawed down from our first. Our first run of snowfall was 16 inches, so Mm. I can now see the pavement again in time for tomorrow's snowfall. So it's that time (laughs) of year for all of us, no doubt. Have you ever been to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan before? I have not. I have not made the trip up north. I have many friends from the... uh, from the area up there who have allotted it. So I'm still waiting for my inaugural trip. Maybe I'll make you guys a part of it. Well, we'd love to have you, show you around. It's a great winter sports town, hockey, skiing. We know you're a football guy, though, so let's jump into that. A lot to break down as far as college football. This week, the Final Four were released. We know who's going to the college football playoff. And based on Saturday's results, I don't think that there were too many surprises. Did anything surprise you about the Final Four? No, this is about as easy a choice the committee's had in a while. And really, the last couple of years, they've been spoiled. Remember, last year was the first time in the college football playoffs, at that point, five-year history, that we had had three undefeated teams make it to the Final Four. There had been some debate around those last two spots. And now this has been the last two years where we've had three undefeated in the top spots. And this year, I think really a big gap between who we've seen in the top, LSU, Ohio State, you maybe could have quibbled about the spot there. I think they got that one right, considering how close it had been all year long. And then Clemson, who has really flown under the radar, despite being the team that everyone was jockeying for position not to have to face in the first round of this tournament. Like, given that there were four deserving teams head and shoulders above everyone else this year, does that hurt or does it help the argument for an expanded playoff? Uh, I, I mean, I would look at this year's field and say, I don't know how you could think it strengthens the argument right now. I mean, the teams you'd be looking at next up in all this one are teams like Oregon, teams like Wisconsin, teams that we've seen flawed and beaten pretty badly by some sound teams. And I think just seeing even now the way that we look at Oklahoma at that four spot and say, yes, they absolutely earned their way into this. Part of this has to be merit what you accomplished given your schedule. But they're eleven point dogs in this first game. They're going to be they were going to be double digit uh, dogs regardless of who they face. And we're all kind of not really giving them a chance. So if there's that kind of drop off from three to four, why would I want to expand this any more and involve teams that I think, based on what you do during the course of the season, should not be allowed to? I think potentially water down what is pretty close to a true champion in college football right now. Well, I'm glad that you brought up the gap between three and four because we have, like you said, three unbeatens in the top three spots, and really you get the feeling any of them could win the title this year. I believe LSU and Ohio State are the top two teams in college football, and Clemson is still the national champion until somebody says otherwise. Who do you like out of this group of four? I I really am starting to look at Clemson more and more. I think it's going to be a Clemson-LSU final. Uh, I think that when you look at what Clemson has done, they kind of suffered from what happens to us a lot in the NFL, which is the sort of primetime bias, right? We see teams in Thursday, Sunday, or Monday night in the NFL and college. We see them when we get these ranked matchups that get flexed at night and all eyes are on them. 
Well, the only time we really paid attention to Clemson this year was early in the year against Texas A&M, but that was still a day game. And then you had North Carolina, where they win by one and it feels like a loss. And we're all tuning in down the stretch because Mac Brown's going to go for two and he's going to try and take down the Giants his first year back in North Carolina. And then after that, they didn't play any more ranked teams until they got to the ACC championship game. And so we didn't really pay attention to them. And while we were away, Clemson was busy throttling people. And they're doing it with, as you mentioned, a lot of the same personnel from last year's group, and I think they got better along the offensive line. Brent Venables did the thing that he often does, which is reload on a defense centered around Isaiah Simmons, their Buckus Award-winning linebacker, and has built them into a team that not only has the top-end talent to compete, but didn't have to grind through a schedule like everybody else. And I get they're going to have that off time, but a year of pounding can't be erased in 40 days, and Clemson certainly took markedly fewer blows. What is it about the Ohio State-Clemson matchup that makes you think this is a game that Clemson can win? I think when you have to put the ball, and we haven't really seen this, you're allowed to operate by a different set of circumstances as a quarterback when your team averages 280 yards a game on the ground. And that's what Ohio State's been averaging this year. They're one of the top non-military academy, uh, non-service academy rushing attacks, not running the triple option, meaning. So when you're a quarterback and you're allowed to operate in those circumstances, you're not being blitzed nearly as much. You're getting different things coverage-wise that make life easier for you. So we've never seen Justin Fields have to really shoulder the load as a guy in a dominant passing attack. You couple what Clemson got personnel-wise with a coordinator that I mentioned in Brent Venables, who, and I have to give my, my friend Dan Orlovsky, one of our great college football and NFL analysts, credit for this, saying that he, Brent Venables is going to throw some Star Wars-level blitzes at this Ohio State offense, try and confuse Justin Fields and see if he could shoulder the load and beat you. I know Trevor Lawrence can on the other side, and I haven't seen Justin Fields have to do it yet on the Ohio State side. Well, I'm with you in the sense that I believe LSU is going to get by Oklahoma and get to the national championship game. If Oklahoma's got any shot in that game, though, what has to go right for the Sooners? Uh, They've got to hit big plays. You know, in some senses, football, especially in college, is kind of like sitting at a blackjack table. I can sit there all night and kind of hem and haw and seesaw a little bit. If I'm not hitting splits and doubles in my big bets, I'm not going to walk out of there with anything of value. And this Oklahoma offense, on its best days, which were in the real, really the first half, three quarters of the season, we're making huge plays down the field. We're CD, we're getting CD Lamb involved in the ball offense early and often. And as of late, Mike Gundy said this before they played in Bedlam at the end of the season. He called them a wishbone offense. The amount of rushing attempts that Jalen Hurts has the way Big 12 defenses were playing them, playing back a lot of three-down three down D lines, trying to take away the big play and forcing them to become a power, predominantly two-running-back, quarterback-rushing team. So if they're going to have a chance, I think they're going to have to go to see uh, LSU's defense and try and hit those big plays and not just make it a Jalen Hurts rushing attack. Outside of the college football playoff, Mike, are there any bowl games, any matchups that are intriguing to you we could learn something from? Um, I think for me, looking at one I know I'm really interested in, and part of this is biased. I think their Twitter account's the best in college football, but the Belk Bowl is going to be really mm. interesting this year. You've got Kentucky going up against Bud Foster and that Virginia Tech defense, and Lynn Bowden and that Kentucky offense have been so, as a former offensive lineman, I should say, extremely fun to watch. We know that was a big change for them. Now predominantly a monster rushing attack. I think maybe had against Louisville, like one passing attempt in that game as they rushed for darn near what felt like 400 yards. I'm very interested to see how them against Bud Foster, the last run for one of the great defensive coordinators college football has seen, go up against it down in Charlotte. 
Talk with Mike Golick Jr. of Golick and Wingo here on ESPN UP, six to ten every weekday. Mike, for those of our listeners who don't know, tell me about your relationship with the Belk Bowl and their Twitter account. They have their own hashtag for you. They do. You know what? The Belk Bowl, and I give them credit. I got to call their game on radio a couple of years ago when Wake Forest and Texas A&M broke about every offensive record. And since then, we've had a pretty good relationship because, listen, offense sells, and they know where the ratings are buttered. So I feel like kind of a good luck charm for them. And so they have started the hashtag Make Mike Work the Belt Bowl. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem like the bosses here at ESPN have caught on, and I'm sure we're sending our best, our quality crew, to go and do that game. And so I'm happy for that. It's the last year, I believe, with Belk as a title sponsor. So kind of the end of an era there and just a, an entertaining follow. If you're not following the Belk Bowl and watching their interactions with the fake, the faux Bo Pelini on Twitter, you're really missing out on a large portion of the good times of life. Mike, the four Heisman finalists were announced last night. Joe Burrow, Jalen Hurts, and then the two young men from Ohio State, Chase Young and Justin Fields, are all going to New York. Who do you believe has the edge in that race? I, I think this is Joe Burrow's award. Like, it's gotten to the point now where I think the only real conversation is, well, who would you pick second if Joe Burrow no longer existed? Because he's been that good this year. His rise, and we know, was there last year, this offense was much more stagnant, had taken that next step of bringing Joe Brady aboard. They're, you know, guy that's been in the quarterback room there helping Joe Burrow grow. But he, he's just been electric. It's the nation's top offense, so many different statistical categories. And, and he's not... There's lots of college quarterbacks that are productive. One of my good friends played in the NFL said, you come back and watch college, everybody's open. Like, it's just a matter of you can hit a wide-open guy 90% of the time. Joe Burrow is consistently NFL accurate with his balls. He's putting them in places where only his receivers can get him. He's putting them in places where they've got opportunity for run after catch. He's the kind of deadly Sunday accurate that we don't often see at the college level. Well, Mike, I'm glad that you mentioned Joe Brady because he's going to be one of the most sought-after coaches this offseason. A few other names I want to throw at you, and you actually covered them this weekend in the Big 12 Championship. Lincoln Riley will get his shot in the NFL this offseason if he wants it. It's Matt Rule, though, that really interests me. He built Temple up. He built Baylor up. Both those programs are nationally relevant again. Do you get the feeling that he could be on the move in the near future, or is he pretty committed to staying in Waco? You know, it's amazing, neither guys, when you hear them answer, give you the impression that they want to go elsewhere. And you mentioned, I think the NFL would be the likely destination for both. We know Matt Rule's got some of that in his background. And we know Lincoln Riley's been a guy that NFL coaches have been flying to Norman to source almost every offseason because he's one of the most innovative minds in college or professional football right now. For Lincoln, I think it's going to have to be overwhelmingly the right situation because he's done the impossible. He took over for a guy in Bob Stoops who was a living legend in Norman, who had done no wrong there for so long, and he made the transition look better than seamless. You're in a Big 12 that you saw this year. is very winnable for you, and you've done it in just three years turning it around. You're going to be a guy, but I think both of them, that are going to kind of be able to call their shots. And what we've seen with some of the better coaches, college or pro, look at Josh McDaniels in the NFL, who are in situations that are already good, who know that they're going to have the job the, the job they want whenever it comes open and they want it. I think they're more willing than ever to wait around in the good situation and understand that they are chasing perfect, kind of the elusive thing that few coaches get the chance to. 
Mike, the majority of our listeners up here are fans of Michigan, Michigan State, Wisconsin. I wanted to pick your brain on those programs, and let's start with the Wolverines. I know it hurt for both you and I when they thumped Notre Dame, but it seemed like that turned a corner for Michigan, and they were playing such good football, then ran into a buzzsaw playing Ohio State, and you have the frustration with fans, with Jim Harbaugh's inability to beat Ohio State, and to a lesser extent, player development or lack thereof it. Where do you stand on where Michigan is with Jim Harbaugh? Are they closer to contending for a national title and beating Ohio State with them, or would they be closer without him? I mean, at this point, it's got to be with them, right? And I understand the player development. I remember all the stats that came out about four- and five-star recruits going there and then going into the first round of the draft and all these different things, and, and that is certainly warranted. They've also developed a fair amount of guys. I mean, the Chase Winoviches of the world don't come into college as ready-made products and then leave at that level without some pretty stout development. I think along the defensive line there, they've done pretty well for themselves, but this has really been about quarterback development. We know what Jim Harbaugh was brought there to do. He is brought there to be one of those quarterback whisper-esque guys, and up until now, we had seen it. We can understand with the John O'Corns of the world that you're maybe not getting it done. But Shea Patterson was brought in there, and this year on offense, Josh Gaddis was brought in there to unlock that next level. And you're right, the disappointment came because after halftime at Penn State, it looked like they had started to get there. It got close this year, but that Ohio State game, when it ends up like that against your rival, it's going to get uncomfortable soon. Next year is going to be really pivotal. I think going into that, you've really got to go out there and start to win a couple of those rivalry games start to be more consistent and at least more competitive when it comes to that team in Ohio State because this is not Urban Meyer's Ohio State. This is the one you're expected to beat. If Ryan Day starts laying the ground for another dominant stretch, it could be trouble for Harbaugh. Talking with Mike Golick Jr., co-host of Golick and Wingo, is heard here on ESPN-UP every weekday from 6 to 10. Mike, in regards to Wisconsin, a year ago they were 7-5. and five. They were getting ready for the Pinstripe Bowl. They were a preseason pick to go to the playoff, and they largely disappointed. This year they had that loss to Illinois. They turned it around, got to the Big Ten Championship. Now they're going to the Rose Bowl at 10-3. and three. What did Wisconsin do this offseason to turn things around and put them in the position they are now? Uh, well, I think you look at Jack Cohn and what he offered a quarterback, a little more of a dynamic guy than they were uh, used to in the past. That certainly helped. It was interesting. The offensive line, which had more starts than anyone knew what to do with last year, it's a big-time name, I think got better without the burden of expectation this year. Jonathan Taylor was going to be the constant. He's one of the most underappreciated backs I think college football's ever seen. I think it's a crime that he's not in New York right now as one of the guys that's up for the Heisman Trophy, getting to sit there and get the credit that he deserves for an incredible run in a college career. But, man, you want to talk about coordinators that are primed for the next step and going to be primed for a head coaching job soon. Jim Leonard's become one of those names in college football on the defensive side. What he has put together and what I think people saw on display in that Big Ten championship game, when they punched Ohio State in the mouth was, man, this guy knows how to scheme them up and make people uncomfortable on that end. And they turned over a bunch of experience and talent from that defense from year to year. So he's starting to get himself into that vein. And he's a guy, you know, uh, a Rex Ryan coaching tree guy, a great mind that's got some of those NFL tenants that a lot of people are going to be looking at soon. Mike, Michigan State was in the playoff four years ago. This year they're 6-6, six and six, and I know Mark D'Antonio's always going to be a legend in East Lansing, but I know the fans around here aren't happy with 6-6 six and six being the standard or being a win for the program, and I know they're grateful for everything D'Antonio's done for the program, but they are frustrated after this last 25 or so game stretch. What's your take on where Spartan football is as a program? 
Yeah, I think that's one of those where you do kind of have to slow down because I don't think it's been bad enough for long enough to pull the trigger on a staff that was largely the same staff that was with you the last time we were at all the places that Michigan State wants to be, winning the Big Ten title, representing in the college football playoff. And so I don't think these people all of a sudden just forgot how to coach, but you're looking at, again, in that conference, you mentioned Wisconsin has started to come up, so you're going to have to deal with recruiting there. We've seen, you know, we know the Purdue's of the world, but now Minnesota starting to come up with P.J. Fleck there, certainly Ohio State, Michigan, and all this. So there's a lot of competition for resources. So it may not look perfect every year, but I wouldn't be necessarily ready right now. I still think the runway is a little longer before we say this is a definite trend going in a direction we can't come back from with a guy who, I mean, hell, when Tom Izzo is going on openly campaigning for this guy to remain at the school, that he should be able to leave on his own term, I have a feeling that's going to be a hard voice for Michigan State to dissent with. Mike, last thing before I let you go, you and I are both domers. You went to the national championship with Coach Brian Kelly. Tell me something about him that us on the outside wouldn't know unless we were with him on a daily basis for four years. Well, I'd say this. I think Brian Kelly is a psychic, and I think I found that out on the first day that we ever had him introduced as our head coach. I'll never forget it. We're there, and Brian Kelly's got his introductory press conference. It's 2010. You know, we're, we're, it's 2009, excuse me, and that spring going into my junior year. And Brian Kelly gets up in front of the media, and he's talking about what we're going to expect for this program. And first off, we had to help him out with the whole Notre Dame. It was, you know, the, being the head coach of Notre Dame in that press conference. And he was a quick learner, so that wasn't an issue. But he mentioned, you know, we were going to rededicate to physical fitness, wanted to lean guys out. He said we weren't going to be out late night snacking on cheesy pizzas. Well, I was sitting in the stands at that point, a 21-year-old young man in college, looking at my friends who had, we had all just been at the late-night pizza place outside of the Thursday night spot that we used to go to after college. And I started looking around wondering if Brian had been there in line and I had missed him and if he would already begun scouting the guys on the team. And so at that point I knew, this guy's got eyes in the back of his head. He's going to be able to see everything. We better get buttoned up. And sure enough, you know, we did. And, and a few years later, things already started trending in the, the positive direction that he's gone for the last decade now. He's Mike Golick, Jr. of Golick and Wingo, as heard here on ESPN-UP every weekday from 6 to 10. Mike, that was great stuff. I appreciate you being on. Love to have you on again sometime, but we got plenty of football to keep us busy until then. Thanks again. Thanks for having me. Let's take a timeout. More after this on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to The Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along. Here's your Sports Center update. Indianapolis Colts kicker Adam Vinatieri will undergo season-ending knee surgery. The 46-year-old is in his 24th season of pro football and is the NFL's all-time leading scorer, but he's not considering retirement per head coach Frank Reich. The injury bug has also gotten to the San Francisco 49ers. Center Weston Richburg is done for the season, and the team could be without cornerback Richard Sherman and defensive end D. Ford until the playoffs. And finally... Male students at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah, need a doctor's note in order to grow a beard. That is your Sports Center update. Glad to have you along per usual. I've got some Northern Michigan audio I want to play for you. We got some basketball, hockey. We're getting into the winter sports season, what have you. First, though, a couple other things that are trending. This story that's still developing. The Dallas Stars fired head coach Jim Montgomery earlier today due to what they call 
unprofessional conduct. They did not elaborate beyond that. They say there is no criminal investigation. What Montgomery did was not unlawful. There's no abuse associated with this. But unprofessional conduct is the reason for firing Jim Montgomery. He got the Stars to 93 points and a trip to the second round of the playoffs last year. He came to Dallas after a very impressive run as the head coach at the University of Denver, which concluded with a national championship in 2017. Rick Bownis will take over as the interim head coach. Meanwhile, yesterday, the Washington Nationals re-signed Steven Strasburg to a $245 million contract. Garrett Cole expected to exceed $300 million with whatever offer he decides to choose. Currently, the Yankees are the only team with an offer on the table. That's a look at what's trending, but let's get to some Northern Michigan audio before we run out of time for the day. And let's start with hockey. They're coming off their bye week, and boy, did they need it. As injury-riddled as they were, they're going to be without Caleb Shore still for this weekend when Minnesota State comes to town. But how big was that bye weekend? Well, Andre's healthy, um, you know, and he's a valuable player for us. And if you look at kind of the way his season's gone, Started out the year very strongly, and there's a couple, two or three weeks where um, he played just okay, and now makes sense that he was a little banged up, and, and having him back um, healthy, he's a great player, but also because we played with 10 forwards in, in Huntsville now that Caleb's hurt. Uh, hopefully Rylan will be back, and sometimes just getting a break, you know, is, um, is, is good mentally. Uh, physically is one thing, but mentally is another thing, so hopefully we'll find out on Friday. Coach was asked about the goaltending situation, what that's going to look like for Mankato this weekend. Uh, no, no one's going to play Friday. I mean, if you go back to he came in relief, uh, I thought he actually played well on Friday um, up at Tech. Um, came in relief on Saturday, didn't give up a goal. Came in relief on Friday, uh, didn't give up a goal. And in those two games, you know, it was half a game on, uh, on Saturday and almost the whole game on Friday in, uh, in Huntsville. And then he gave up one on Saturday. So um, those last three performances have been pretty good. The team had a disappointing weekend at Huntsville a couple of weeks ago. Have they reflected on that, used that as motivation, or have they moved past it? Uh, we moved on. Yeah, we played poorly on Friday. And, um, you know, it's going to happen. And to be, to be honest, I'd like that's probably the only game this year that I could say we've played really poorly. Um, we've won some games and not played well. Um, we've lost some games and had stretches of playing poorly, but that was probably the only stinker we've had this year, and um, those are going to happen, and you just got to move past them. So what do we know about Minnesota State as the top-ranked team in the country comes to the Barry Event Center this weekend? They are, when you watch them, you know, if, and I just reflect on, you know, different teams you've played over over time, and whether it was St. Cloud last year, whether it was Boston College with Gaudreau and, and that clan, or, um you know, North Dakota when they when they were loaded, there was really good players, and the players made you nervous. Um, Mankato has really good players, and they have unbelievable depth. They all play the same. Um, they have no weakness. You know, you, you play some teams that have really good players, and you might have a you know a plan to try and knock them off their game. Um, this is the best team in college hockey. They have the best players. Um, their players are better than ours. Their players are better than everybody else's, too. Um, they're well coached, and there's a reason they're 14 1 and 1. You know, they've only given up two goals twice all year. That's it. So um, they're for real. They're, uh, there's no doubt about it. 
they're um, they're they're a great team and they're playing great. Coach talked about some keys to this weekend and being successful. Yep, have to be at our very best. Um, you know, but you know, like I I mentioned to the guys, and there's a fine line. You know, and whether it's college hockey, junior hockey, the NHL, um, Boston's lost three games all year and they got beat by Ottawa last night. You know, it's there's just a fine line in sports, and um, you know if you if you play well and you're firing all cylinders and uh, you're competing and you're skating, um, you have a chance to beat anybody. Coach was asked how the locker room is right now. Good. Yep. Good. Uh, dialed in, excited to play. Um, you know, I think sometimes going into break, you can be looking past a couple games. Uh, there's no doubt we're not looking past these games. So after Mankato, it's another long break, almost three weeks between games. Is that going to help the team? We'll get a couple more players after Christmas. You know, that's going to help us. Uh, that'll help our depth and, um, you know, hopefully some of our scoring. You don't know. Um, you just don't know. And we've always played well in the second half, so hopefully that continues. You heard Coach mention some newcomers. What are they going to bring to the table? Um, I think they're both different. Um, Vanderbeck is, um, you know, he's a version of Robbie Payne, you know, can, can score from anywhere. Um, you know, probably not an F1 four-checker, but um, great hockey sense, great offensive ability. Uh, he's going to add to the power play. He's going to add to the top of our lineup. And Brandon Schultz is, you know, he's probably a combination of Ty Reedman and Griff. Um, you know, probably somewhere in the middle there. And, and he can play any position. Um, you know, he plays hard. He's going to add, you know, I, I can see him adding some some ability on the power play. Uh, I think he's going to help kill penalties. You know, I think he's going to play almost every situation, so so he's going to help. Um, really looking forward to those two guys and um, have a defenseman that's just finishing school here and he's got to get through. And, um, you know, when James Miller gets here, he was the defenseman of the year in the BCHL. So he had, I think he had almost 60 points last year as a D. So he's coming at Christmas also. And, um, you know, another guy you can use in the power play. Well, the power play has been struggling, unlike early on in the season. Has that been the main focus for the team lately? More this week we are. Um, you know, and that's actually, it's, it's interesting you brought that up because we were just talking about how important that's going to be. Um, we got to win the special team battle, and we have to score in the power play. And, and, you know, if you look through the course of the year, I think sometimes power play numbers get, you know, misleading where, you know, maybe we were we were five or six in the country, and, and that was great. But... I, I got to talk to the guys. I don't care what the percentage is. I care when we need a goal, can we deliver? And to score the fifth goal in a 5-1 game, um, that's great, but doesn't really affect the outcome. You know, and uh, half the time the power play is about generating momentum. And if you score, you score, and that's your goal, but you have to generate momentum so that carries through the rest of your game, and um, we got to get back to some of that. Northern was swept by Mankato when they came here last January. Does that series still ring in the back of their minds, or have they moved past that and looked ahead to this season? It was a tale of two games. Um, the first game we played outstanding. Um, you know, it was probably in Hate's career, maybe one or two or three games that he just, you know, didn't didn't see it. And uh, you know, so Friday you, you leave the game disappointed that you know you felt like you you could have won that game, and then. Um, Saturday was one of those real stinkers and you know you, you have to move past that because it's different players and 
um, you know, different times and, and different things happening. So um, I think maybe year within a year, games can carry over. Uh, I don't think that they carry over over time unless they're playoff series. Then I think they can carry over into the next season. Coach Grant Petoni of the Northern Michigan Hockey Squad, his team getting set to welcome number one Minnesota State of Mankato this weekend. Let's turn it over to men's basketball. We chatted with head coach Matt Makerzak, his team dropping their first two GLIAC games. Both were good games. How's coach feeling? It's tough. I mean, anytime you go into and lose two close games, uh, both one possession games on the stretch, I don't think you're going to have a lot of great feelings about it. Um, at the same time, kind of what we talked about Saturday, I don't want to overreact to things that um, we, missing shots in particular, I don't want to overreact to that because that's part of the game and that's part of the game that I don't know if you can necessarily control with with anything that night. A lot of that has to do with the work you put in and by and large I'm happy with the work our guys have put in and we've shot the ball well all year so I don't want to overdwell on one bad shooting night um, or even two bad shooting nights in some ways and um, so that's the part you don't want to overreact to, but obviously still tough losing two close games. So now what do you need to do if you're Northern men's basketball? Yeah, I think we just need to, we need to tighten up some stuff um, on both ends of the ball. Um, obviously, I think this weekend our offense was our bigger issue than defense, um, but I think it, it just comes down to the replacing the production that we lost. The key is when you get in those conference fights, we need we need some guys to to be confident and step up, um, and I thought Sam Taylor did it this weekend. But we need more than one guy to kind of step up in those close games or when our team's not playing well. That's when you need two, three, four guys to really kind of step up and deliver. And and I think we're we're trending in the right direction that way. Where we've seen it in some of our non-conference games, we've seen it in practice. I just thought maybe I, I don't know maybe the conference season, maybe the first home games, a little nerves. Um, but it just seemed like we didn't have maybe some of our guys that this year played a huge role playing to their capabilities, and hopefully we can solve that heading into this weekend. So it's Michigan Tech Week, and it'll be coaches' first involvement in the rivalry. I feel like they've been waiting for this team for four or five years in some ways where um, they've had a bunch of really good players, but those players haven't all played together at the same time um, because of injuries and all that kind of stuff. So in some ways they have almost like seven returning starters and um, a bunch of guys that led them in scoring in different years and things like that with, with some of the adversity they've been through in the past. And they're healthy. They're very talented. I think they're a lot of people's kind of pick to win the league, um, assuming everything can hold up there. Um, yeah, I think they're a really good team. We've seen a lot of them, which I think helps in that we traveled with them to Alaska. We traveled with them to Illinois. We're very comfortable with them. I've been watching Kyle play since he was about 15 years old. I was at UW-Green Bay when he was going to school around there, and we were on the fence recruiting him. And uh, So he's someone I'm very familiar with, and we have a ton of respect for them. At the same time, um, I think our guys are, are confident we can play with them if we play our best, which sounds sounds a little controversial when they won both games by 30 and we lost both games against the same teams last weekend. But um, I do think if we can play up to our capabilities and, and defend them and try to limit them, um, I'm excited for kind of the opportunity to try to bounce back in as big a way as possible. I don't think we could ask for a, a better matchup as far as uh, if we could play well, it would it would prove a lot to, to our group and um, hopefully give us some confidence moving forward. Does the rivalry factor in as motivation for this weekend? 
Yeah, I, I, I haven't been a part of a, a Tech Northern game yet. Um, I've heard, obviously, a lot about it um, from a distance. I've kind of known about it, but I'm excited to see kind of what it actually looks and feels like. Um, I will say, like, just with being travel partners and the fact we've traveled with them to non-conference tournaments, it, it, it in a way, almost kind of fuels that rivalry and that you see them a lot. Um, the flip side of it is is... I really like their kids and their coaches, and um, it's hard for me to all of a sudden say, hey, they're a rival. I don't like those guys. I, I, I like them. They're great people. Um, this is the, the one uh, or two, two days this season where I hope they have a, a really tough go of it on Sunday. But other than that, um, you know, I think it's one of those rivalries where there's a lot of respect, at least from our end. Northern was seeing the floor really well this weekend. Shooting, yeah, struggled at times, but they were seeing the floor. Was that by design, or did the guys just have that good at court vision? I think that's something we've really emphasized is the ball movement because we don't have those one-on-one scores, which at times hurt us. So we've had to rely on, on passing um, and making quick decisions instead of being able to just drive and attack you. Um, so that's definitely, it's an emphasis not just in kind of what we're doing from a play perspective, but also from just a general basketball philosophy. And I actually thought that's one of those things, I think you saw it, how good it can be at times, but we didn't do near enough of it. Um, so it was kind of a glimpse of what we want to become in, in when we made those plays. Um, we just got to do it more consistently. And um, that's something that is kind of our our everyday battle is just figuring out how to play completely as a team without having kind of those one or two guys that can just go score on their own the way the teams we played this weekend did or even the way Northern has in the past. Coach addressed some missed opportunities fundamentally for his squad. We want to create wide open shots after a lot of ball movement and I think we have good enough shooters that we can make those shots so in a way if we react to the missed shots by stop shooting them that's the worst thing that could happen for our team because we don't have those dominant one-on-one players that can just go score at the rim over and over again so our our baskets have to come as a result of um, a lot of ball movement a lot of body movement and then getting open shots and we just got to stay confident that we're going to knock them down and um, I think over time the more we get used to everything, the system, playing in the berry, all that stuff, I think the more um, consistent we'll be with knocking those shots down. That's Matt Mackerzak, Northern Michigan men's basketball coach, his team getting set for Tech Week, coming off an 0-2 start to GLIAC play. Let's take our last time out. More Northern audio for you after this on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. If you missed any of today's show, including our interview with Mike Golick Jr., go check it out on demand. Get our free mobile app from the Apple Ice Store or Google Play or check out ESPNUP.com and get the on-demand there. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along here in our final minutes of the day. I've got a little bit more Northern Michigan audio for you, and it's with Nordic skiing head coach Sten Feldheim. His team getting set to open up the new season. They have perfect weather for it, one would think. Uh, we were fortunate to get early snow. It was really good. Probably the biggest problem with the early snow is uh, we couldn't scan it right away because the trails needed to be clean. It was hundreds of trees were down on the trail, but... Got got some volunteers on our team that go out there and clear some trails, but it's been good. We had a time trial on our race course this past Saturday, and it was good to go hard and race. Coach talked about who are some skiers on both the men's and women's side who are going to be stepping up for him this year. Well, uh, Zach Catterson just won a NORAM in K-1 
Canada. Um, and his plan is most likely we're going to redshirt him because he's probably going to go to the World Championships. And this year the World Championships fall at the same time as NCAAs. So we want to keep him around for next year for sure. Uh, but Matthias Rulid is uh, skiing really well. And uh, Chetel Bonarud is a returner from last year's NCAA team. And I expect those two guys to be leading the pack for us. Um, for women, we have Julie Ansrud returning, um, but we have some talented new young women that are challenging her. Uh, Hilda Ada. Hilda, uh, she's skiing really well. Uh, she's from Norway, and a Swedish, young Swedish woman, we have Malin Berjesjö. So, I don't know if you can pronounce that, but those two are one at a time trial we had this weekend, so they're looking good. Is Coach happy with where his team is this far in the preseason? Are they about where they should be? Yeah. I, I mean, this is uh, one of those, the time of year where you're just itching to race somebody to, to get some sort of a measuring stick on where you're at. Um, you know, it looks pretty good to Andy and I, our assistant coach Andy Keller. We're seeing some good things technically, uh, but until we race somebody, we don't know um, if we're losing time on the hills or if we're gaining time on the hills, uh, if we need to work on upper body or technique, you know, we do it all the time. We're always working on technique, but we need to race somebody, and uh, we're looking forward to that this weekend. We'll be racing at Alqual uh, Saturday and Sunday against Michigan Tech. Well, just like basketball, it's Tech Week for Nordic Skiing. They've got a duel coming up with their arch rivals from Houghton. Uh, Michigan Tech has um, a vastly improved team. Um, they did a good job of recruiting this year. Um, so that's fun. That's challenging for us. We like that. Uh, the better, the better the team is that we race, we seem to race harder and better. Um, so uh, we have a freestyle race on Saturday, and then Sunday is a classic, uh, traditional style, and that starts at ten. So um, it's going to be a small meet, but it's kind of a good way to start the season. And the following weekend, uh, after I think it's the twentieth, twenty-first. We'll be heading up to Michigan Tech, and that'll be a bigger event with more teams. Generally, you're going to get a bunch of teams here, and it's going to be a big event. But with this dual setting, is that advantageous? Does Northern prefer that? Yeah, uh, I do because I do most of the organizing. So uh, there aren't as many athletes uh, participating, as many teams. It's easier to communicate with uh, the coaches, and it just makes the administrative load a lot lighter. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that, and it's, it's a little bit calmer atmosphere where you can do a better job of coaching and not so much um, administering, and, yeah, it'll be good. Um, we also have the national championships, which are going to be held up in Houghton, and so far, by the entries coming in, it looks like it'll be the largest U.S. nationals in history as far as numbers go. They're predicting over 600 racers from all around the country. Um, it's an important event. We're going to be racing... Uh, four individual races up there after Christmas, so from the 2nd through the 8th, I believe, of January. Uh, two sprint events and two distance events, and um, teams are selected for a World Cup and Junior Worlds and U23 World Championships from these events, and, um, and we're hoping we could put a couple young athletes on a team to Europe again. Uh, should be interesting, and it's always a challenge. Um, the last uh, skier we had win was uh, Kyle Bratrude, won a skate event in 2015 and 2014, I believe. So, um, yeah, I'm 
I think Zach Ketterson can have a good chance of winning uh, the sprint and maybe the shorter distance race. Stan Feldheim, Nordic skiing head coach at Northern Michigan. I tell you what, time's out well because that's it for us here on ESPN-UP. Again, if you missed our interview with Mike Golick Jr., it's available on demand. It was a good one. Don't want to miss that. Get our free mobile app from the Apple App Store or Google Play while you're at it. I'm back on tomorrow, same time and place. It'll be ABC 10 Wednesday, and it's my hope that you join us. Until then, signing off from ESPN-UPWZ, I'm Ishpeming Marquette. I'm Tanner Hoops. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday.